is a box, a musical box, wound up and ready to play. Can you guess what is in it today? Welcome to this week's edition of Box 39. I'm Bill Lawrence, but I'm impersonating our very own Yvonne Peeney this week for the purposes of one of the most extraordinary grey area accounting techniques I have ever concocted. Thanks to a loophole in the gender clause of the programme maker's contract, and thanks also to the paid-for assistance of Colne Radio Human Resources Department. This is being done in such a way that Colne Radio Finance Department has no choice but to pay me double for this show. This week, Box 39 investigates Indonesia, with a selection of items previously heard on programmes made exclusively for Colne Radio by Guppy Productions, including eight Indonesian 100-word onions written by young Indonesian women entirely for free an arrangement made possible by Adrian's threat to withhold their final grades. So, let's get on with it. This is Box 39 Investigates Indonesia. About 150 million Indonesians are currently online on social media. In other words, 56% of the country's massive population. Indonesia has one of the largest digital audiences in the world, which is good news for businesses who plan to market their offerings through social media. However, Indonesia's social media audience isn't just large, it's also active. The average Indonesian spends 3 hours and 26 minutes logged on to social media every day. For comparison, the global average is 2 hours and 22 minutes. 88% of all Indonesian internet users, about 132 million people, actively use YouTube. Other research suggests that up to 47% of Indonesians access YouTube every day for about 30 minutes on average. This means that YouTube content creators are becoming increasingly influential through social media. By March 2019 this year, 200 Indonesian channels had gained over 1 million subscribers, a five times year-on-year increase compared to 2018. Also in 2019, one Indonesian content creator became the first channel in Southeast Asia to hit 10 million subscribers. Facebook-owned WhatsApp and Japanese platform Line are the two most popular instant communication channels amongst Indonesians. During the third quarter of 2017, about 40% of Indonesians, at least 100 million people, are using WhatsApp, and it'll be even more now, two years later. Meanwhile, Line had 90 million Indonesian users. These numbers just keep moving upwards. A motorcycle taxi driver received an order at three in the morning. The customer was a lady, ordering from Block M number 16. When the driver arrived at the pickup point, he couldn't get in contact with the customer. He asked the security guard about the address's location. 
The guard looked worried, but was not really surprised. He then told the driver to go home immediately and wash his motorcycle. Block M has only 15 numbers. The rest of the area is a cemetery. He added, You're lucky that you asked me first. I couldn't save the previous taxi driver. Listening to Colon Radio 106.6 FM, and this is Box 39 Investigates Indonesia. Indonesia were the first Asian nation to make it to the World Cup finals back in 1938 when they were known as the Dutch East Indies. But we'll call them Indonesia, as FIFA has recognised the nation as the successor team since its independence from the Netherlands in 1945. That remains the sole Southeast Asian appearance on the global stage, a sad fact that is not going to change in 2022, though there is some optimism about 2026, when the tournament expands and Asia's automatic allocation doubles from 4 to 8. As the Dutch East Indies, they had not entered the 1930 or 1934 World Cups. They did manage to qualify in 1938, but more of that later. They withdrew from the 1950, 1958 and 1962 tournaments. They did not enter the competitions in 1954, 1966 and 1970. And then they failed to qualify for any of the 11 World Cups that were held between 1974 and 2014. In 2015, the Indonesian Football Association was suspended for two years by FIFA because of government interference in the country's national league. The ban took effect immediately and meant that Indonesia was not eligible to compete in the next round of qualifiers for the 2018 World Cup or the 2019 Asian Cup. That ban has been lifted and so now Indonesia, currently ranked 159th in the world, is battling it out in the Asian Football Confederation Qualifying Group D with Thailand, United Arab Emirates, Malaysia and Vietnam. After two matches, Indonesia are bottom of the table. Anyway, back to 1938. Indonesia were in the two-nation qualifying Group 12. The other team was Japan. Because it was at war with China, Japan withdrew, which meant that Indonesia qualified automatically. The finals tournament was a straight knockout format involving 16 teams hosted by France. Indonesia, kitted out in orange and white, just like their colonial rulers, met eventual finalists Hungary in the first round and lost 6-0. Defending champions Italy later beat Hungary 4-2 in the final. Hungary also lost 2-3 in the final to West Germany in 1954. Indonesia almost qualified for the 1986 World Cup. It topped the four-nation Asian Football Confederation qualifying Group 3B comfortably, having seen off India, Thailand and Bangladesh, only to then lose to eventual qualifiers South Korea 1-6 across a two-leg playoff. Oh well, roll on 2026. If the water turns clear and fragrant, it means I never tried to hurt you, not even once, she said sorrowfully 
as she jumped into the deep river. She was right. The water turned clear and fragrant. At once, Radan Bantarang realized that he had lost his other half, his wife, Queen Surati. His unfounded jealousy and rage had made him believe the gossip that she was having an affair and was even trying to kill him. It was now too late, and with regret, he forgot about it. Since then, that place has been called Banyuwangi, or Fragrant Water. Postcard from Indonesia. It's a bit of a funny situation, really. You know, I've got Bill and Ian from Colon Radio coming out to visit me, and you know that's great. It's, it'd be lovely to see them, but the original reason why I wanted them to come has actually evaporated. You know, I thought, oh, a couple of people are coming out from Britain to see me here in Indonesia. The idea was, yeah, brilliant, they can bring me some Marmite. Maybe uh, one or two kilograms each. Because, you know, I just can't get Marmite here in Yogyakarta in central Java. But now that reason, as I said, has evaporated because I got this Dutch guy who has a wife here who lives in a village on the, uh, on the mountains just to the south of the city. And he comes over about three times a year. He plans to retire here, maybe uh, next year or the year after. And he brings loads of Marmite every time he comes. These little 200 gram squeezy bottles, which I was very skeptical about because I'm very much a traditionalist about Marmite. But the squeezy bottles were good because it kind of restricts the amount of Marmite that comes out, or at least you can control it. So you can use a very small amount of Marmite on a piece of toast. Now, my friend Tim here, he pointed out quite rightly, he sort of looked at me sideways and said, yeah, there's a lot to be said, though, for eating too much Marmite. And he's right. However, when you're really treating it like a precious commodity, the idea that you don't use very much each time but still get the Marmite effect is very valuable. Yeah, you can get Vegemite here, and Vegemite's okay. It's got kind of a sour aftertaste. It isn't really quite the same. And ever since this Dutch guy started bringing this Marmite that he bought in his local supermarket, good on the Dutch for having Marmite. Good on them. It's a complete anathema to Indonesians. I haven't met a single Indonesian person that can stand it for even a second in their mouth. Anyway, up until he started this for me, it was a case of only getting a hold of Marmite on trips to Singapore for sure, and possibly Kuala Lumpur, but even that wasn't for sure. And then trips to Australia meant that you couldn't get Marmite because Marmite as is found in Australia is the New Zealand version that is licensed, the name, but it's like really sweet and not nice at all and not the same thing as Marmite. It's like a kind of a, a sort of a, an atrocity of honey gone wrong, just really sweet. But in the supermarkets in Australia, you can get Promite, which does taste the same as Marmite. Anyway, I don't need Ian and Bill to come, but they have a radio program to make, and uh, I suppose we'll record some stuff, fill up the hour week after week, and so be it. We'll just have to see. But just so you know, I haven't cancelled my order for three kilograms of Marmite. That'll be in their suitcases, for sure. Put your hands up 
listening to Cone Radio, 106.6 FM, broadcasting to up to 7.8 billion people around the world. And this week, Box 39 investigates Indonesia. I stare at my reflection. The girl staring back doesn't look like me. No longer silent and afraid. A gleam in her eyes replaces old tears. Yesterday, a man had asked Papa for my hand in marriage. Successful, religious, independent. I refused. Papa almost had a cardiac arrest and the suitor left, the ring still in his possession. I told Papa... I cannot marry a man. It took a second or two. Realization dawned on him. Papa clutched his prayer beads and engulfed me in his arms, said, If Allah can forgive everything, then who am I to withhold forgiveness? half an hour out of the city of Solo. An awesome drive. Cliff edge roads, people walking up them with back with packs just tied around their shoulders, motorbikes carrying three or four people. Arrived at a Hindu temple. Um, we've uh, been allocated our pieces of black and white hatched cloth, and we're now ascending the final steps towards the uh, what well, looks like a temple, a holy shrine. And it's quite interesting as we come up various flights of stairs, we reach plateaued areas where there are carvings of various deities, and there's some interesting patterns of stone laid on the ground. And as we're going to ascend further, the buildings are beginning to encroach on the path, and there's symmetrical gateways that have been created which focus your eye towards the point that we will ultimately reach it's an absolutely tranquil and beautiful scene as we ascend but when you turn and look back down the valley it's quite I mean it's spectacular in another way because this is best described as radio mast central and it is just littered with antennae After making the final ascent of stairs, we've uh, come to the temple area itself, which has a wide trench around it, brick-lined, well, rock-lined either side. And then above it, there's uh, the base of what ultimately would be a pyramid structure, but seems to stop at about a third height. And then within that is the temple itself, which we're not allowed access to. But it is what has become the most tranquil place. The only thing that we can see, very steeply rising banks uh, to our sides and above, covered in quite thick, lush vegetation with 101 shades of green. And in the background, you may be able to hear gators or other insects. the odd bird um, chirping but it is just a very very peaceful place quite interesting as we came up the final three stages of the um, development the temple site there was a rest or appears to be a resting points at each stage of steps that we climb wooden structures on either side of the central path which i guess the pilgrims would have taken shelter in or had time for prayer before making the final ascent to the center of the temple itself.
are about 300,000 military personnel in the Indonesian army. But unlike the British army, which is gathered in a relatively small number of bases in garrison towns across Britain, like Catterick, Aldershot and of course Colchester, the Indonesian army has bases in hundreds of towns right across the archipelago. The National Army of the Republic of Indonesia was created and legalized by the Declaration of Independence in August 1945, a few days after Japan surrendered, which set in motion a rather asymmetrical war between Indonesia and their former colonial masters, the Netherlands, who wanted to pick up from where they'd left off when they'd been unceremoniously booted out of the Dutch East Indies by the Japanese in 1942. In this war of independence, the Dutch were never really strong enough to stop the Indonesians from just getting on with running their new country. And the Indonesians were never really strong enough to get the Dutch to go away. The Indonesians also did not have enough money to finance their new Republican army. So, the army positioned itself in towns and cities up and down the country in countless bases, barracks and garrisons, and they went into business in all manner of ways in order to finance their military activities. These military activities included suppressing any rebellions against the new central government regime, which was happening across Java but was happening even more frequently on the other islands. There were also different ideological groups vying for the freedom to act and the freedom to create an alternative to the regime in Jakarta. With the National Army, loyal to Jakarta, camped out and wheeling and dealing in almost every town across the nation, the unity of the state, as Jakarta wished to have it, was assured thanks to the scattered and integrated military power. And countless army bases from that era still exist today in hundreds and hundreds of what I suppose we can call garrison towns. And although since 20 years ago, officially speaking, the army was no longer permitted to run enterprises, it is still omnipresent and ever-present with almost all Indonesian urban dwellers, rather like the people of Colchester, no more than a couple of kilometers away from the nearest army barracks. Kartika had always found the night to be a soothing presence. The never-ending blackness engulfed everything except for the moon and the most luminous stars. Her eyes lit up when the brush left yellow strokes on the black firmament. The pristine black sky made the moon look resplendent and the stars shimmered akin to glitter. At this moment, she realized that the good and evil are two sides of the same coin, complementary to one another. The Empyrean being the corrupted society and government system itself, along with the stars as the noble ones, the conquerors of this unjust country. You're listening to Box 39 here on Cone Radio, 106.6 FM, and this week the show investigates Indonesia. So, hello, my name is Marcela. I'm from El Salvador, a small country in Central America. Uh, but I have been living in Germany the last five years and now I live in Indonesia. I moved to Indonesia January 2018 for a double degree at the University of Gajamada in Yogyakarta. That 
That's right. And so, Cone Radio, in collaboration with Guppy Productions and Box 39, is able to present Marcella's Guide to Studying in Indonesia for Colchester people from an El Salvadorian perspective. As a double degree student in this university, uh, for me it's obligatory to do something called KKN, which is a community service I do in a small village for only about 15 days. The village invited me to a Chatilan. Chatilan is a traditional dance it's a traditional dance here in, uh, in Java. It's about some guys dancing with some uh, bamboo horses and they are just calling the spirits. So the tradition is that they play some traditional music and the spirits will come to the, to the guys who are dancing. So once the spirits are in the guys, the eyes change totally. They start to do crazy things like eating cigarettes or just, uh, they are just getting hurt and they don't feel anything. I got the chance to see it twice. The second time it was a special Chatilan organized for me because it was my last day. So they decided to do uh, like a, a Felworth party. Um, once I was there and once the guys had the spirit inside, the guy who dominated the spirit, he told the guys to come and to say hello to me. I start to scream and <laughs> to hide behind all Indonesians. But uh, you could, it's something traditional, which I really respect, but it's really scary as well. So if you get the chance to see a Chatilan, don't get scared. <laughs> People get hurt. But it's something, it's, it's interesting to see that it's part of the culture. Like, it doesn't matter which re religion the people are, they will always go to this kind of things because it's just a cultural thing. So it doesn't matter if the people is, are Christian or they are Muslim, they will be part of this thing. Maybe not as the dancers who get the spirit inside, but they will support it because it's just part of the Javanese culture. The interesting thing is that there's different kind of spirits. There's the tiger spirit, there's the where well, there's a girl, there's the uh, there's a monkey spirit. So depending on the spirit you get, you do you start to do crazy things. Like for example, one guy got the monkey spirit, so he started to climb the tree. Uh, the other one got the tiger spirit, so he got masked, this, this kind of traditional Indonesian mask, and he started to dance and then after that part, there's a certain guy who needs to take the spirits away. So that's a creepy part, but overall it's just an amazing thing to see. It's just involving, being involved to that, this strong culture. The crowd was singing beautifully, complimenting the singer's soft yet powerful voice. The caress of the wind and the soft glow of stage lights made the night seem lively. The street was filled with people and their loved ones. Couples drowned in gazes of one another, swooning along with gleaming and adoring eyes. It was as if those eyes spoke of adoration and happiness in that moment. The artists' performances were bewitching, singing love stories with Prambanan Temple behind them 
a tale of unrequited love turned tragic. So ironic, considering the warm, requited love felt in the air that night. World War One in Indonesia, or the Dutch East Indies as the sprawling archipelago was called back then, was a relatively quiet time as Europe tore itself apart in such a ghastly and meat-grinding way. The Netherlands remained neutral in World War One, and so its colonies around the world were not involved in the war either. So, we are talking about a very different story than the one in World War II, when the Netherlands was invaded and occupied in 1940 by Germany, and the Dutch East Indies were invaded at the end of 1941 by Germany's Axis ally, Japan. In the next four years, up until 1945, maybe as many as four million Indonesians died as a direct result of the Japanese occupation. That's five Indonesians dead between 1941 and 1945 for every one of the 740,000 UK soldiers who was killed in the Great War. But World War II was a different war. And we do have to admit that the statistics never fail to take one's breath away. Take World War I's global curtain call, the Spanish flu, which swept the world in 1918-1919. It may have killed more than 5 million people in Indonesia in the space of a year, and that was from a population of only about 50 million at the time. The same flu, which didn't come from Spain, by the way, took 250,000 lives in the UK including thousands of people in Colchester and the rest of Essex. The South and East Asian and Pacific regions were not really a prominent theatre during the Great War. Japan was on our side, of course, and there were some naval battles, and the Germans were dispossessed of their modest colonial territories, one of which was part of New Guinea Island and shared a border with the Dutch colony. So the Netherlands stayed out of the First World War, although it did have to reaffirm and indeed prove its neutrality over and over again, something that involved the war's combatant nations monitoring what was passing through Dutch ports. Back in the Dutch East Indies, this meant that there was much disgruntled uncertainty in some quarters about whether the local people would be dragooned into serving in the Dutch military to fight or at least support the fighters in the trenches of the far-flung continent of Europe. Nationalist agitators in Java were able to exploit this discontent. Exports from the Dutch East Indies to Europe of sugar, rice, oil, cotton, tobacco, tea and pepper came to a standstill as the First World War progressed. There were shortages of machines and medical equipment. This economic depression persisted well after the end of World War I, as Europe staggered under the weight of its own economic and social woes. Famine and rebellion on the archipelago always seemed imminent. It was in this atmosphere and these grim circumstances that the Indonesian independence movement started to find its feet. There were the nationalists, there were the Islamists, and there were the socialists and communists, who may have taken some inspiration from Russia's abrupt exit from World War I in 1917. The Dutch spent the interwar years suppressing these movements harshly. <laughs> Nevertheless, Less than 30 years after the movement-kindling impacts of World War I and in the wake of the atomic bombs and the Japanese surrender, while also taking advantage of the Netherlands' weak state after five years of brutal occupation by the Germans, Indonesia finally declared its independence. No regret when we kill 
All the haters gotta disappear MP3 better than real life Distance it and back to real life Pajar untuk kau padang tongi AC Pamer kebodohan di etalase Dorong bako dorong pacar dengan macet Gila keskaget tanpa situ rantai MC jadi gengsi dari Indo sampai Jay-Z Lazy, lazy Pengen jadi MC kayak Jay-Z tambah basic Lazy, lazy Fuck that I'm not gila from the east lah Siapa bilang kalau tontra bisa Tangkap tangan tiru lagu kawan niat Bukan lawan mimpi dapet tawa I'm back on my land Anak kecil banget banyak dari kemarin Taruh perut kepo untuk dapet pengerian Bila tonga dia mimpi sudah dapet tumpah den Diri bela diri yang mengiris sumpah diri Diri di kebiri bila ada orang lupa diri Semakin ke kiri banyak jadi anak tiri Terapat untuk mengirik helix yang ini Bitch web Wati lived in a village with her mother. She rarely socialized with the other children as they often teased her for having no father. One day, one of her classmates, Shri, had disappeared. All she remembered of Shri were the colorful ribbons in her plaited hair. They haven't found Shri yet, Wati shared as she slurped her meatballs. That poor child, murmured her mum. Were you tormented by those wicked children today, dear? Wati shook her head, trying to pry out a piece of gristle and a snippet of red cloth stuck in her teeth. She smiled and continued eating. How unique is our community here in Northeast Essex? What really matters? How different is life really, wherever we live? I'm heading north on a train from Yogyakarta to Solo. The journey will take me about an hour. The train's rattling through the countryside and it's been raining. There's been a heavy burst of rain, but with this humidity, it's not surprising. Ladies and gentlemen, in a few minutes, Lodaya will arrive in Solo Balapan, the last destination station. Please prepare your belongings. We remind you to stay in your seat until the train stops. The basic mechanics of life can be seen in each village as we pass. At one end, at the edges, you'll see the refuse, the waste whether it's plastic, vast swathes of plastic, but more likely piles of the husks of coconuts. And then you've got the cemeteries uh, to the edge of the town, to the rice fields. You've got very small little workshops for maintaining uh, the motorbikes that are prevalent absolutely everywhere. You have the mosque, or maybe more than one. Small shops with banners and pictures on the banners of, of, of canvas banners with uh, pictures of fried chicken, rice and at the edges uh, the big wide fronds of banana plants. Thank you for using our services and see you on the next trip. If there's one thing that we have seen an awful lot of um, in our time here it's uh, been plastic rubbish. Not as you might have thought in recycling bins or uh, being collected by the dustbin men who do exist. Um, but what we have seen as we've driven through villages and um, along the main roads and down to the beaches is a, an overwhelming burden of just discarded single use, as the, the phrase goes in the UK, um, those single use containers. Um, it's been quite a revelation. You've got these wonderfully picturesque beaches and the countryside is absolutely beautiful, incredibly atmospheric. Yet on the periphery, on that sort of margin between the road and the forest and between the beach and the sea, there is a line of rubbish. So it's lunchtime. Popped in for lunchtime at a local street food where you just help yourself a bit like a buffet. Small little room, perhaps uh, six tables, four people sit around each table. At the front of the pandong is a curtain, and between the curtain and the street is a glass cabinet. 
on which all the different parts to the meal sit and you are given a plate of rice by the owner and then it's up to you to take what you want and you pay for the bits that you have eaten. So we have five large bowls, almost tureen shaped with ladles uh, in them and you help yourself to those. Those are your sort of core sauces to go on your rice. One of the tureens with very liquidy as vegetables, mainly green beans and some onions and a red liquid that is slightly spicy. There's another one which holds beef in it. It's very oily, very oily. And again, that'll be put on your on your rice. There's a bowl of spinach, and I haven't eaten it. It's very dark, chopped very finely. Quite rough, quite tough to eat, but actually work well with the, the greasiness of the sauces that you put on your rice. And then two very small bowls at the end. One is a green chilli sauce, spicy but not hot, and the other is the ubiquitous red chilli sauce that goes everywhere. Well, that was the most extraordinary five minutes. Uh, sat with Adrian and uh, Bill eating our lunch and all of a sudden frenetic activity from the staff as they ran out of the front door and uh, grabbed everything that was on the front step of the restaurant. The uh, ice cream machines, the, uh, the scoops and the cones, the A-frames came in, all because of what initially appeared to be a little shower but turned into an absolute torrent and as you can probably hear now we've got traffic coming down the road going through what are two parallel streams running either side of the road. It was an absolute deluge. Now we are in Jakarta in what is classed as the monsoon season um, and it was only brief, I say five minutes in length. The amount of water that is fallen, there are torrents of water coming down the, uh, the angled driveways from the back gardens of houses into the gutter and as I say we've got streams now running either side of the road. It's a fairly steep camber um, but yeah it's all draining away uh, almost as quickly as it came. The motorcyclists are now in their capes with their reflective stripes on as they go past and as per usual we've got at least one motorcyclist coming the wrong way down the one-way street. I'm wandering around an indoor market here in Indonesia. I'm just squeezing past a lot of ladies here who are buying stuff. Packets of dried bananas, they're very small, uh, sweet again, they look like they've almost been uh, sugared where Indonesians will come. Hello, hello, hello! <laughs> this lady is offering to sell me little like small potatoes. What are these called? Yeah. What are they called? What's the name? Mali. Yeah. Yeah. That's very nice. It was a shape of a plum, but clear. Oh. I'm okay. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you. As we sit here in the taxi, the one thing I'm really struggling to comprehend are the number of um, repair shops. But there are hundreds of them, a couple in uh, every street that we've been down. For motorbikes sort of just laying against the, the front doors, all the equipment uh, hanging from the walls, spare tyres and wheels uh, lying at the back of the motorbike shops. It is frankly just amazing what they don't have um, on show once they've opened up the doors. You're listening to Colin Radio, 106.6 FM, and this is Box 39 Investigates Indonesia. Feeling the sand between my toes and looking at the shore from my island, Bali. I wondered, are they ever going to come back? Bali is our home. At least it used to be. The four of us agreed to part ways after what happened that night, but we said that in ten years, after everything had settled down, we would come back to this spot, to this beach. I'd been walking here for hours on end, searching for familiar faces that I've awaited for years. I thought to myself, should I keep waiting or should I just give up? 
So there we were, on day eight of our tropical adventure. We'd been all over the city of Jogja and its many sights and attractions, not to mention sampling its culinary delights. We'd also been on long treks by car across the central Java landscape, between two volcanoes and down to the spectacularly idyllic south coast. And so it seemed the right time to explore close up and in a willfully pottering along kind of way, the villages, country lanes and rice fields to the south of the city in the stinging sunshine and sauna-type heat. Having done that, we made our way right across the bustling city centre and had a look at the campus of Gajamada University. The rest, as Bill and Ian will now tell you, was an interesting bit of history in the life of Mr. Ian Talantire. Yes, uh, we were doing all those wonderful things, weren't we? And we're exploring Indonesia for Colm Radio and meeting wonderful people everywhere. But uh, we're talking about Panti Rapi, the biggest and best hospital in the large uh, city of Yogyakarta in Indonesia. And why are we talking about Panti Rapi and hospitals? Because, Ian, you were involved in a road traffic accident and your visit to Panti Rapi started in, in A&E there. So... What's A&E like, 8,000 miles from A&E in Colchester General? You're almost asking that question as though you uh, suspect I spend a lot of time in A&E at Colchester, Bill. But anyway, before we talk about my impressions of the place, how was it for you as the observer in this situation? <laughs> oh, calm. I was calm. And it just seemed a lot of calm people around. There was a lot of activity, though, as it, like any A&E. Absolute frenetic, really, I guess, within the emergency room. We stepped through uh, to the outpatients area. Uh, you were just hit by noise and heat and, uh, quite remarkably, a Dunkin' Donuts shop right there bang in the middle of A&E. Now, I know you might find an M&S outlet or, uh, what's the other one, WH Smith's in the more modern district generals here, but, but a donut outlet? Well, Ian, give us your impression. Well, for me, it was a little surreal. Obviously, not planned and not something I expected to be involved in. But I must say, getting on to the, the nursing side of stuff, the care was exemplary. I had an assigned nurse to look after me and she saw me through the whole process of blood tests, x-rays, ECG being taken and even escorting the pair of us up to the ward when they'd finished with me. Yeah, that's right. I do remember that nurse. Now, that process of transfer, well, it was a little bit odd, wasn't it? I mean, you crossed the outpatient's area and then you passed through this, well, can I, I could only really describe as a... a absolute barrier to stop people passing through a metal gated entrance and and it had guards on either side didn't it yeah and they looked pretty hefty gentlemen yeah, i would not yeah. have wanted to tangle with them no. certainly not in the certainly not in the uh, state i was in with uh, one very <laughs> dodgy shoulder um but you two you and adrian were at least issued with security passes i mean poor old me i was on lockdown so uh yeah. What, what, so, well, anyway. I, we did come and go at leisure. I mean, they they checked the they they were checking those passes at five in the morning and five in the afternoon. It was uh, very strict. But anyway, your room, a super deluxe VIP room, you booked yourself into, didn't they? Uh, well, yeah, that bed electrically powered, wasn't it? There was a colour TV. It actually had next a guest bed, didn't it? Uh, um, just to the side, a wet room, nice big wet room, wasn't it? Um, and it came with toothbrush, toothpaste, soap, you know, all that sort of welcome pack that you would get in a hotel. It's sort of like a hotel room, wasn't it? And that, and not only did you get that, of course, you got level one surgery. And don't forget, Ian, we negotiated level one surgery for you. Now, 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 before everybody gets excited about the three tiers of surgery available in Indonesia, you know, a scalpel, knife, a rusty knife, um, what you need to realise is that over there, the level of surgery indicates the accommodation type that you get, not which surgeon is doing the job on you. So level three basically meant you're on a ward, two gave you a shared room, and level one, which I opted for, um, gave me a private room where my friends could photobomb me in the privacy of that room while I slept off my anaesthetic. You know you loved it, really. Four and a half thousand photos going immediately onto Facebook. That's your sort of thing, isn't it? Anyway, I'd like to point out that the photos we took were all in the best possible taste. Uh, it's just not... And, and, and mean you now have some great memories, don't you? <laughs> don't you? In a day, you'd have, otherwise, you'd have missed out just snoring away there, so... There you are, listeners. What loving, caring friends, uh, both Mr... Yeah. 
Bill Lawrence and Adrian Cohen are. Cheers, fellas. Oh, well, you know, it's a pleasure. Now, so, uh, once you're in your room, what did you think then? Well, Wi-Fi connection was a little poor, kept dropping out. Oh, you're uh, so modern. <laughs> but the TV was useful after 9pm, as there were a succession of yep. English-speaking films, so some entertainment for me while you and Adrian went out eating and drinking. Uh, and, folks, unlike <laughs> Colchester General, you didn't have to pay to use the telly. That's right. So, but other than that, I managed to turn the beautifully polished, pristine white marble floor red by accidentally pulling the uh, cannula out the back of my hand. And my discussions with my insurance company began, Bill, uh, which was very interesting. In fact, I could talk about that all night and have had another exciting episode just this morning. But you know what? Let's get on with the show. Well, yes. <laughs> Di sungai yang kotor Kisah usang Tikus-tikus berdasi Yang suka ingkar janji Lalu sembunyi Di balik meja Teman sekerja Di dalam lemari Dari baja Kucing datang Cepat ganti muka Segera menjelma Bagai tak tercela Masa bodoh Hilang harga diri Asal tak terbukti Ah tentu sikat lagi figure arose from the distance of Mount Barapi, galloping towards Ayuhadinigrat as she waited. A soft smile lit up Jaya Mankunagaran's face as he came to a halt beside Ayu. An unbearable echo in the distance as a gunshot fired. Dismounting their horses, Jaya took her hand as they rushed towards the ship. Pirates... Jaya pointed his fingers, blasting the largest one, blocking our entrance. Take us to your captain, Jaya commanded. Ayu gazed at the unconscious pirate, placing her tiara in his hand as they passed. Crew members whispered and stared. The captain, clearly startled, bowed. Your Majesty... When I first came to Indonesia, the 20th century still had one more decade to go. In charge, we still had General Suharto, who had come to power as a dictator in 1966, after stepping in to save the country from a coup that wiped out all of his rivals, and that he almost certainly staged himself while blaming it on his opponents, a few million of whom ended up dead in the following year or two. He was forced from office after 30 years of regular rigged and rubber-stamped elections and an era of very orderly kleptocracy. This happened because of the 1998 Asian economic crisis, a widespread and bottoming-out financial debacle not much felt by the good people of Northeast Essex. And this happened immediately before we all arrived in the 21st century. Suharto's fall ushered in a new era of reform and nascent democracy. So far in the 21st century, we have had five general elections, relatively free and fair, and five peaceful handovers of power, five different presidents, and with only one ex-military figure among them. The current president, Jokowi, who is as not military as not military can be, 
was once the owner of a furniture factory before successful stints as the mayor of a large city first and then of the capital city Jakarta. He is now embarking on his second term, having recently trounced the as military as military can be General Probovo, who set out his stall to become a Donald Trump type president, but with a background in actually running death squads. So we are now 20 years into the 21st century, and what do we have to show for this new era of reform and nascent democracy? Well, plenty, I'd say. A fast-improving health system, a less-rigged justice system, improving schools and universities, and there is the ever-strengthening freedom of speech and freedom of association, the dampening effect of a suffocating bureaucracy with all its corruption and cronyism has been significantly lifted, at least for ordinary people, and the middle class has exploded on a sensational scale numbering about 5 million at the beginning of the 21st century and then a spectacular 75 million just six years ago and it's thought it will reach an estimated 140 million by next year and that's out of a population of 280 million. This extraordinary expansion of the middle class has brought with it the irresistible need for greater political and entrepreneurial freedom, better schools and hospitals, more shops, more places to stay, more transportation, better TV, a better selection of crisps in convenience stores, fast internet, political activism, cinemas showing foreign films not as censored as they used to be, butter and cheese that are not in tins, and so on and so on. 2019 Will this country ever be squeezed like a genie back into its General Suharto bottle? I don't think so. Warts and all, and even with certain persistent problems notwithstanding, and new ones admittedly creeping in, I'd say, reporting here from Indonesia, we love the 21st century. That's all we have time for in this week's edition of the show. I have been Bill Lawrence impersonating our very own Yvonne Pini. And you have been listening to Box 39 Investigates Indonesia. Till next time, be seeing you. Box 39 is a guppy production for Cone Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. <laughs> <laughs>